The sermon text for today is John chapter 12, verses 1 through 11. You can find this passage in the Blue Pew Bible on page 1637. Listen as I read God's word. Jesus anointed at Bethany. Six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany, where Lazarus lived, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. Here a dinner was given in Jesus' honor. Martha served while Lazarus, Lazarus was among those reclining at the table with him. Then Mary took about a pint of pure nard, an expensive perfume. She poured it on Jesus' feet and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was later to betray him, objected. Why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It was worth a year's wages. He did not say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. As keeper of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Leave her alone, Jesus replied. It was intended that she should save this perfume for the day of my burial. You will, not, you will always have the poor among you but you will not always have me. Meanwhile, a large crowd of Jews found out that Jesus was there and came, not only because of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to kill Lazarus as well, for on account of him, many of the Jews were going over to Jesus and believing in him. Here ends the reading. Well, good morning again to everyone. If I haven't had the chance to meet you today, my name is John. I get to serve as the lead pastor here at Elmwood. And uh, today we are taking a break from our regularly scheduled uh, message series. I almost asked you all to stand so we could say Psalm 1 together. We've been in a series looking at Psalm 1 uh, for a number of weeks. And this morning we are doing something a little bit different. Uh, as you know, today is our budget meeting and uh, this just felt like a really appropriate time for us to uh, spend a little bit of time together as a church family, thinking about money and thinking about generosity. Um, usually, the way that I think about our budget meetings and just like church meetings in general, and my guess is that most of you think this way too, is that these meetings are sort of just like tacked on to the end of like our worship gathering. And it's like, okay, yeah, I got to go to this meeting and like, sure, I should participate and do my, you know membership duty of voting and all that stuff, but it, it just always feels, it's, it's always felt to me like our church meetings are kind of just like um, tacked on to the end of our worship gathering, and as, as I was thinking about it this week, uh, I, I sort of had the idea of what if I thought about that the opposite way, and that's what I want to ask you to do this morning, is to do something that maybe you've never done before, is to think about the time that we have right now, where we get to look into God's word, when we get to take communion together and celebrate the body and blood of Jesus given for us, as we get to uh, celebrate and respond to the generosity of God given for us with song and singing uh, together, as we do that, this is an extended introduction to our budget meeting. Our budget meeting is not just something that's tacked on, and the reason that I say that is because I don't think we can have our budget meeting in the right way if we view it any other way than that. We need to go into our budget meeting and do all of our financial responsibility stuff uh, from hearts that are filled 
with the love and the generosity that God has given us. And so I want us to view this time that we have together here today, just these few moments, as uh, kind of a preparation for our budget meeting. So uh, with that, I want to uh, just say that if you've been around Elmwood for any length of time, you know uh, that we are not afraid to talk about hard things. We're not afraid to talk about money and generosity. And uh, there's a couple things that we like to say over and over and over again as we talk about money and generosity. And I'm going to say them again because as soon as you start to mock me before I'm even going to say it, that's when you have started to hear what we're saying, okay? When you can, you know, oh my goodness, here he goes again. He's going to say blah, 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 blah. That's when you know you're starting to get it, okay? Uh, So as we talk about money and generosity, uh, we want to make it really clear to everyone that we want something for you before we want something from you, okay? Uh, What we want is your maturity in Christ, We want you to be deeply rooted and grounded in who Jesus is and to have hearts that overflow with love for him. And we do believe that there's uh, some correlation between our maturity in Christ and our financial stewardship, right? So as you increase in your maturity in Christ, we do believe that that means you're going to, as you uh, take on the character of Christ, you're going to uh, be a more generous person. And that's going to be reflected in your relationship uh, with Elmwood and how much money you give, right? So there's some correlation, but we don't care just about getting money from you. We're not just trying to put the squeeze on you to get you to give more money. We want, first and foremost, your maturity in Christ, not just your money, okay? So just want to make that really clear. And the other thing that we say uh, over and over again is that this is our promise to you, that we will never uh, knowingly or intentionally use any form of guilt or shame or manipulation when we talk about money. If what we're after is hearts that are actually overflowing with love for Jesus and our generosity is a response to what God has done for us, guilt and manipulation and shame, those things are counterproductive. Those things don't actually work. And so we don't want to use them because they they accomplish the opposite. They make us people who may have the external appearance of obedience but whose hearts are far from God. And so we don't want that. So we uh, will not use... Uh, tactics of guilt or shame, uh, and we just want to make it clear that as we talk about money, we want something for you before we want something from you. Uh, so with that, uh, let's look at John chapter 12. I'm going to uh, open us in a word of prayer, and then we're going to uh, look at this passage together. Jesus, we desire to have hearts that overflow into the kind of devotion that we have heard about in the life of Mary. Lord, we desire to have hearts that are so deeply rooted in who you are and what you have done for us that we can't help but express our love and our affection and our devotion to you in ways that are uh, radical and extravagant. So God, we pray right now that by the presence of your spirit, you would be near to us, that you would help us as we look at this passage And ultimately, that you would change us and transform us, that you would help us to see uh, Jesus, and that we would leave here changed people. And we ask this all in his name, and God's people said, amen. Well, as we look at John chapter 12 today, what we're going to observe is uh, kind of a contrast between two different characters. There's two different portraits of people and their generosity that are held out for us, as you heard read, and we're going to uh, look at those different portraits of generosity here And so the first thing we see as we look at the life of Mary is we see uh, the surprising generosity of Mary. Listen again as I read from verse 1. Six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany, where Lazarus lived, 
whom Jesus had raised from the dead. Here a dinner was given in Jesus' honor. Martha served while Lazarus was among those reclining at the table with him. Then Mary took about a pint of pure nard, an expensive perfume. She poured it on Jesus' feet and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. So this surprising generosity of Mary, and indeed the costly generosity of Mary, uh, can be seen first in uh, the, the value of what she gave to Jesus. Okay, uh, Jesus is here in Bethany, which is just a short distance outside of Jerusalem. Uh, the Passover season is coming, so uh, Jews from all over the, the known world at that time are coming into Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. And there's this banquet that's thrown in Jesus' honor there. And uh, during the course of that meal, at some point, Mary decides to crack open, to break open this jar of very expensive perfume. And the text tells us that she opened this jar of perfume, and she poured it out all over Jesus' feet and wiped her feet, his feet rather, with her hair. Now, this was a a very, very expensive perfume. Uh, This was something that not just any ordinary person had. Most scholars think that uh, they came from a fairly wealthy family, which is why they had access to this kind of thing. But this pint, this is about 12 ounces, so about a can of pop, worth of this very expensive perfume, It was derived from a plant that grew in northern India, which means that you had to import it, which is why it was so expensive. And, of course, they didn't have, uh, you know, mass transit. They didn't have trains or semi-trucks filled with, you know, material going back and forth between countries in, in commerce. So things like this were very expensive. And so she's got this very expensive perfume that she... Uh, just pours all out over Jesus' feet. And it's interesting that when you read about the same account in other uh, of the the biographical accounts of Jesus' life and ministry, uh, you you read this in other Gospels, and you see that they say, he didn't just pour it on their feet. She didn't just pour it on his feet, but also on his head. But John doesn't talk about that at all here, and we're going to see why in just a few minutes. So sort of tuck that away with you for right now. Uh, But we just got to sort of get our minds around how expensive this was. This was worth uh, 300 denarii, which was the equivalent of uh, one year's wages for just an ordinary average person. So uh, not someone who's rich, not someone who's bottom of the barrel poor. This is just an average day laborer's wages. Uh, So in today's money, that's anywhere between 30 and 40, 45,000 dollars that this perfume would have been worth. And she just cracks the thing open and dumps the whole thing out over Jesus. And, and you, there's no sense here if she's like carefully like dribbling this on him, you know, like she's trying to like be, be reserved in how she's like, okay, well, I don't want to use too much. No, she cracks open this bottle and she pours out the entire thing all over Jesus. And then she wipes his feet with her hair. And you just got to get the picture here of there's this banquet that's taking place And this woman walks in and pours this perfume all over Jesus, and every single person in that room experienced her devotion to Jesus. Because every single person in that room was flooded with the smell, was overwhelmed by the fragrance of this stuff that she poured all over Jesus. And so in a way, every single person in that room experienced her devotion to Jesus. So we see something of the value of what was given But her uh, costly and surprising generosity is also seen in the cultural barriers that she broke in the process. 
So she does something very costly, and in the process of doing so, she broke all kinds of cultural barriers and social sort of expectations of the day. Uh, Like I said a few moments ago, uh, most people believe that Lazarus and his family were uh, fairly wealthy, which is why they have access to this uh, jar of perfume in the first place. Uh, They are the kind of family that owned slaves. They're the kind of family who had household slaves and servants that they employed to do all kinds of work for them. And what does Mary do here? She puts herself in the form of a servant. She takes on the role of a slave. Because it was only the slaves in the first century that ever touched anyone's feet. Okay, you got to remember that this is a first century world. There are no paved roads. Everybody walks everywhere on dirt roads with open-toed shoes. Okay, that's gross. <laughs> and so you come over to someone's house and your feet are dusty, they're dirty, they're sweaty, And so it was the job of a slave to do the menial, degrading work of getting down on your hands and knees and washing the dirt and the smell and the filth off of someone else's feet. No one aspired to that job. That was who did that, was people who were in that position of slave. And Mary here comes from this wealthy family who has enough money to, you know, have this thing sitting on the shelf waiting. And she puts herself, she humbles herself, and takes on the form of a slave. Now, I'm hoping right now that there are some neurons that are firing back and forth, and you're making connections to other places in the Bible right now, but we'll get to that in a little bit, okay? So we see uh, the value of what was given. We see that she broke this uh, status barrier. We also see that she broke a a gender barrier as well. Uh, This was scandalous for a woman to show this kind of affection to an unmarried rabbi. Okay, Jesus is known in the community as some form of spiritual leader. And this woman comes up and shows a kind of affection for him that was viewed by those in the first century as trashy. This was viewed as sexually suggestive. Okay, women in the first century would typically wear their hair up, uh, maybe have it covered with something, because the perception was that if you walked around with your hair flowing out, that was, uh, you were trying to get the attention of men. That's what, that, that's what that signaled in the first century. And so for this woman to come in and to break the social barrier by putting herself in the form of a slave, taking on that menial role, she broke that barrier. She comes in and she's got her hair flowing out and she gets down on her hands and knees and wipes Jesus' feet with her hair. So she broke that gender barrier. So she's just breaking all these different barriers that exist socially and culturally in the first century. And the sense you get from this passage is that Mary just simply doesn't care. Do you have any sense from this that Mary is like thinking about what other people are, are, are thinking about her in that moment? No, she's, she doesn't care about the cost of the perfume. She doesn't care about the, the perception that people are going to have of her as she uh, wipes the feet of Jesus with her hair and takes on this role that, you know, has this appearance that looks kind of sexually suggestive, she simply doesn't care. Because in that moment, her devotion to Jesus took priority over everything else. That's what we're supposed to see here, is that she was so committed to, she was so devoted to Jesus, her affections were so overflowing with love for him that she didn't care what anybody else thought about what she did. And this wasn't This wasn't like some logically thought out, you know, well-crafted plan where she's like, okay, I'm going to take this jar and then I'm going to go to the party and I'm going to wait for this time and I'm going to, you know, she didn't plan this out, right? The sense you get is that this is, this is like an emotional thing for her. 
This is, this is a visceral, like, gut level, I don't know what else to do, so I'm going to do the only thing I can think of to show my devotion to him, which is to break this jar of perfume and pour it all over him. And so she does that. She has this extreme uh, demonstration of devotion to Jesus, and she simply didn't care what other people thought. Now contrast that with what we see in Judas. So you've got this portrait of Mary and her surprising generosity, but then you've also uh, got the self-serving generosity of Judas. You've got this uh, surprising, somewhat shocking generosity that Mary displays, and then you've got Judas. And here's what we read about him. Verse 4 says, But one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was later to betray him, objected. Why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It was worth a year's wages. He did not say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. As keeper of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put in it. So it's a very obvious, very striking, sharp contrast between the two of them. Mary's generosity is uh, surprising, it's costly. And Judas's generosity, quote unquote, you can put that in quotes here. Judas's generosity is, number one, it's counterfeit. So he didn't actually care about the poor. <laughs> he put on a good show as if he cared about poor people, but he didn't care about the poor. And it was also self-serving. In, in that time, uh, Jesus, w- when he traveled around with his disciples, uh, one of them, Judas, we're told here, had this money bag, or this money box, and as they went around, they would receive donations from people who would, uh, you know, you may have heard them called benefactors, where there'd be people who would uh, want to give financially to Jesus' ministry, and that would uh, provide for Jesus' needs, it would provide for the needs of uh, his disciples as they were out doing ministry, and as Judas says here, they would also take some of that money and give it away to the poor. And Judas here has this sort of counterfeit generosity. He doesn't actually care about the poor. The reason he wanted that perfume to be liquidated and for the profit to be put into the money bag was because he wanted to skim off the top. There was financial incentive for himself in that. That's why he wants this money to be sold because his generosity is counterfeit. His generosity is self-serving. So you've got these two portraits Side by side, this striking contrast between uh, the generosity of these two people. And uh, I think it's just important for us to, to notice here that Mary was praised and Judas was condemned. It may seem like uh, very remedial of an observation. But let me tell you why I think that this ought to be more surprising to us than it is. Uh, the reason is because Mary embodied the opposite of what we would call wise stewardship principles, right? The only way that I can think to describe what Mary did is wasteful. This is excessive. This is over the top. This is completely unnecessary. She was wasteful in her generosity. You know, she didn't, she didn't give Jesus uh, something that would transfer its value, Okay, she didn't give him like, hey, here's, here's a pile of money that's going to hold its value no matter who's holding it. She didn't give him something that he could turn around and sell and then use the money to give to the poor. No, she took this resource. Once you crack the top on that bottle, that perfume is done. 
all of its value, as soon as you pour that out on Jesus, all of the value of that, that whole year's wages just goes up into thin air and it's gone. So she took this resource that was a, a scarce resource. It was a resource uh, that, that couldn't really hold its value once it was used and she just poured it out on Jesus and it looks super wasteful. So she embodies the opposite of what we would think are wise stewardship principles. But then you look at Judas, and you see that Judas embodied what we would call uh, wise stewardship principles. Okay, uh, Try and section off in your brain that this is the guy who's going to betray Jesus. Okay, it, It's super easy. Every time we hear Judas, we're like, traitor. <laughs> you know, <laughs> Everything, every moment is like, you're an awful person. It's like, yeah, it's true. But try and just section that off and look at how he, he thought about money. He said, here's this resource. It's doing no one any good sitting on a shelf. What if we sold this? Think of all the people that could benefit from this. If we took this resource and just sold it and cashed in its value, so many other people could benefit. We could spread the, uh, the impact of this little jar of perfume over onto how many different people? And so, you know, I, I just kept having this, this thought pop into my head this week as I looked at these two. Uh, WWDRD. Anyone know what I'm thinking? What would... Dave Ramsey do, right? You know, what would Dave Ramsey do? Uncle Dave would be like, hey, the wasteful thing? Yeah, don't do that. Uh, The thing where you're trying to figure out how do we take this money and maximize it for the most amount of benefit, that's what you ought to do. And Mary here is praised for what she did and Judas is condemned. And again, the reason is because Jesus is not just looking at the external behavior, Jesus is looking at their heart, and that is where the real difference lies. See, Judas did not delight in Jesus. Judas did not love Jesus. Judas loved money. Judas didn't uh, delight in, he didn't love the poor or actually helping the poor. Judas loved patronizing the poor and being in a position of power over them and the feeling of superiority that they needed him. He loved, I'm sure, every time he would give out money to someone who was in poverty and they gave this look of gratitude of how could I ever repay you? I owe you. And that made Judas's heart happy to put other people in his debt, to put himself in a position of power and authority over them. Judas didn't care about the poor. Judas didn't care about Jesus. He didn't love Jesus. And his wise financial stewardship was the expression of the evil inside of his heart. Mary, Mary's heart was overflowing with love for Jesus. She delighted in him. And you've got this expression of this wastefulness. Wasteful generosity. Is that even, is that even a thing? I don't know how else to say it. It's wasteful generosity. But she does it because her heart has delighted in who Jesus is. Her heart has delighted in what Jesus has done for her. And that's why we see this over the top, this excessive, this uh, just trying to find a way to express your devotion to Jesus in any way you possibly can. That's what we see in Mary because she loved Jesus. Her heart delighted in him. So we've got this portrait between these two people. And Jesus is looking not only at their behavior, he's looking at their hearts. Now, I think that uh, the key for us to really understand 
this passage is to let it pull us both backwards and forwards. Okay, so we got to, in other words, we need to look at this passage and see what's around it in the, in the book of John. And that helps us understand really the power of what we see Mary doing in this passage. So this passage pulls us backwards. You know, you get to the beginning of John chapter 12, and it says, hey, this is right before the Passover, and uh, Lazarus and his sister Mary and Martha are at this party, and oh yeah, Lazarus was raised from the dead. You remember that? And if you've been reading the Gospel of John, you're like, uh, John, you just spent 57 verses in John 11 telling me all about the raising of Lazarus and the events surrounding his death and his resurrection and the, the religious leaders trying to kill Jesus because of it. You've just told us all this stuff about Lazarus. And then he says, oh, remember that Lazarus thing? And the idea is that he's, he's wanting us to make a clear connection between what Mary does here in this passage and what happened with Lazarus. I think what we're supposed to see is that Mary's expression of love and devotion to Jesus was brought about because Jesus raised her brother from the dead. Remember, Mary's, Mary and Martha and Lazarus were friends of Jesus. They were, in all likelihood, supporters financially of his ministry. And so when Lazarus becomes sick, they send word to Jesus and say, you got to get here quick. Because they know that Jesus could have healed Lazarus and he could have lived. And Jesus chose instead to do what? He chose to wait. He chose to let Lazarus die. And after a couple days, when he finally arrives, you can hear the exasperation, you can hear the pain, you can hear the confusion, and some of the anger in her voice when she looks at Jesus and she says, Jesus, if you only would have been here. You could have stopped this and you didn't. And her heart is so filled with pain. Her brother didn't die at a ripe old age, surrounded by friends and family with children and grandchildren there watching. He died unexpectedly of a sickness that overtook him at a young age. And those days, after her brother died, you have to believe that those were some of the most dark and painful days of her life. You've got to believe that Mary would have sat there with her brother's body and just wept. You've got to believe that she maybe would have sat there and stroked his hair, said, oh, Lazarus, why? You've got to believe that she, her mind was filled, was flooded with all these memories of them growing up together and the trouble they would get in, and the arguments they would have, and the things they did, and, and the things that she w- should have said to him that she didn't, and the things that she regretted saying to him. All of those things would have filled her mind during those four days when her brother had died. And so she's filled with this anguish. And then Jesus comes, takes her to the tomb, and Jesus calls Lazarus out, and he comes walking out of the grave wearing the grave clothes and the linen that Mary herself surely would have helped wrap her dead brother in. And so from that moment on, I think Mary said to herself, how in the world can I possibly express my gratitude to Jesus for this? How can I possibly express my devotion and my love to someone who has done something so wonderful for me? He raised my brother from the dead. How can I express my gratitude for that? 
And she's just racking her brain. What, what's the right way to do this? And imagine the moment when it finally hits her and she's like, I don't know what else to do, but I got this jar of perfume, right? And this doesn't even, it doesn't even make a whole lot of sense, right? Like why you would crack open a jar of perfume and pour it all over someone who's alive. It doesn't make any sense. And that's the point of it is that she's not thinking this through logically. She's just saying, this is the best thing I can come up with to express my devotion and my love for Jesus. And that's what she does. And so we read that Mary's devotion to Jesus was born out of how much she loved him. And we're supposed to read this and feel uh, the excessiveness of her devotion. We're supposed to read this and feel the wastefulness of what she did. We're supposed to read this and feel how over-the-top and extravagant this is. And when we do, that prepares us to continue reading after John chapter 12 into chapter 13, where we read this. It was just before the Passover festival. Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave this world and to go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. When the evening meal was in progress and the devil had already prompted Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus, Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power and that he had come from God and was returning to God. So he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, and wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with a towel that was around him. So now you see why John emphasized only the feet in Mary's act of devotion. What Mary is doing, in a way, is she is prefiguring the work of Jesus. Mary is giving us just a little glimpse, a little foretaste, a little foreshadowing of what is to come and what Jesus is going to do. Because Mary here, she humbled herself, put herself in the role of a slave, demonstrated her love for Jesus in a way that was incredibly costly to her. And then you go forward to John chapter 13, and you see Jesus, who we're told here, knew that the Father had put all things under his power. So Jesus is the one who has all authority, who has all power, who's the creator and the sustainer of the entire universe, who's taken on human flesh, and he demonstrates his power by getting down and humbling himself and taking the form of a slave and washing his disciples' feet as an act of loving and costly generosity towards them. And as you read this passage in John 13, you're like, wow, that's so incredible. And it goes even further than that because we're supposed to read Mary and see that Mary sort of leaves us, uh, what Mary does helps us understand what Jesus does in John chapter 13. And then Jesus tells us, Simon Peter said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Jesus, you can't wash my feet. To which Jesus replies, you do not realize now what I'm doing, but later you will understand. Meaning, what I'm doing right now is I'm giving you a small little glimmer of what I'm going to do for you on the cross. And so Mary helps us understand what Jesus does when he washes the disciples' feet. And what Jesus does washing the disciples' feet helps us understand ultimately what he did for us on the cross. 
And we see Jesus telling Peter here, you don't understand right now, but one day, one day you will get it when you see me going to the cross. On the cross, we see Jesus showing us the ultimate demonstration of the love of God, not just for his disciples, but for all of humanity. On the cross, what we see is just how much it costs God to restore the relationship with us that had been broken. We see the lengths to which God will go in order to bring healing and restoration to his creation. And so we're supposed to read Mary and, and leave with a feeling of this is so excessive. This is so over the top. This is so wasteful. And then we come to read about Jesus and it hits us. The, the way that Jesus demonstrated his love for us makes Mary's demonstration of love for Jesus look small. Right? What is so shocking to us when we first read it, we say, wow, that's so over the top. How could you do anything more extravagant than that? And then you read about Jesus and you're like, what Mary did was nothing. What she did was nothing compared to what Jesus has done. And you look at the cost that it incurred her and, and what it cost her to express that devotion to Jesus. And you say, someone gave up a year's wages? That's so much money. That's unbelievable. And then you look at the cross and you see the inexhaustible depth of the love of God for us. And it makes Mary's, the cost of what Mary gave to Jesus, it makes it look so small. What's a year's wages compared to the depth of the love of God for us? And so do you see how to understand really what Mary is doing here, we've got to let this passage pull us backwards to John 11 and then pull us forward all the way to John 13, all the way to the end of the gospel of John. And as we do, uh, we see this beautiful picture of uh, the self-giving generosity of Jesus. Right, we see this sacrificial, costly, surprising, extravagant generosity of Mary. And we see the self-serving and the counterfeit generosity of Judas. And all of that leads us to see more clearly the self-giving generosity of Jesus for us. And so friends, this morning, I don't have some like earth-shattering application for you. Uh, what I want to suggest, what I want to ask is uh, just very simply, will you believe the good news? Will you look at the generosity that God has poured out on you? Will you let that sink deep down into the core of who you're being? Will you let that influence the way that you think about money? Will you let that influence the way that you think about generosity and stewardship? And maybe in these next few moments as we uh, leave time for confession and reflection, uh, maybe it's a good time to just spend time sitting with the Holy Spirit asking, what is it that you want me to take from this? I don't want to pretend that I'm smart enough to be able to speak into all of that in every one of your lives. Uh, and so maybe this is a good opportunity for us just to sit in silence before God, uh, sit in silence before the Spirit and say, help us know what, what is it that we should do about this? And so I want to just uh, leave that space here today um, I'm going to leave that space in just a moment. But we get to come to the communion table today. And as we do so, we get to, to experience the depth of the love of God for us in receiving the broken body and shed blood of Jesus. 
We get to experience the costly nature of what God has done for us by receiving the broken body and shed blood of Jesus. And so I invite you this morning uh, to come to the table with gladness and celebrate the work that God has done. Will you see the generosity that God has poured out on you, has poured out on us as a church family? And friends, this is, I believe, what needs to prepare us uh, for talking about our budget. How do we talk about our budget if we're not first grounded in the overwhelming, overflowing love of God for us in Jesus? So as we come to the table today, I want to uh, just leave a few moments of con- silent uh, space for some reflection and confession. And I just want to invite you to ask the Holy Spirit, what is it that you want me to take from this today? Our merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against you in thought, in word, in deed, by the things that we have done, as well as by the things that we have left undone. We confess, Lord, that we have not loved you with our whole heart, mind, and strength, and we have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. We confess also, Lord, that we have uh, so often not let the abundant love and generosity that you have poured out on us influence the way that we think about and spend our money. And so we pray, God, that you would uh, help us again to see Jesus clearly and would you compel us to be increasingly generous, increasingly sacrificial people. In your mercy, God, we pray that you would forgive what we have been. We pray that you would help us amend what we are and that you would direct what we shall be so that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your holy name. Amen.